Welcome to the Masculinity Podcast, conversations about masculinity, men, and our relationships with them. My name's Mel, and I invite you to pop the kettle on, make a mug of your hot beverage of choice, and join us for a relaxed and open conversation. So for this episode of the Masculinity Podcast, I'm absolutely thrilled to have Van Connor with me. Van is a film critic based in London, and he's the creator of the Me Movies Film Reviews, uh, which you can catch on YouTube, uh, which are an absolutely wonderful way to get the lowdown on what movies are worth seeing, especially if you, like me, do not like to read through all the mountains of reviews online. And Van and I have known each other since high school. We met, uh, I think I was 14 when we met on the stairs at Kuwait English School. Yeah, we go back a ways. We do. (laughs) And I remember even then you were talking about media and film and television. You always had this amazing brain for critiquing what was being shown at the same time as enjoying what was being shown. Yeah, well, I, 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 I'm very unimaginative, so I just kind of have my, my one big interest. I tend to stick to it. But <laughs> Hey, it's good. To find, find what you love doing and do it excellently. Well, thank you for that. That's a nice write-up. <laughs> So I wanted to talk to you today about the way that men are and masculinity is being portrayed in the media. You know, this has come up in so many of the other podcast conversations, the influence that role models in movies and television series have had for men in modeling their own masculinity. And uh, a few episodes ago, we talked about Captain Picard is this amazing, healthy masculinity role model. (laughs) Because you know he's he's strong, he listens, he but he also doesn't take any bullshit. And we live in this interesting time where everything is changing. And uh, I'm really curious to know more about what what do you see as the trends that are emerging and changing? And 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 also I'd love to know more about like how that relates to you as a man in the world. Well, I, to take the first question first, so the way that the the depiction of masculinity changes, particularly in film, is uh, well, it, it's it's secular. These things tend to move in trends and waves. And I, I remember th- this summer I reviewed uh, Hobbs and Shaw, and I got to do a little bit about like how action figures you know, stacked up at the moment and how you had different tiers of different performers. So you had sort of Keanu Reeves as a sort of thinking man's actioner. And then you had uh, Liam Neeson for the older crowd. You had like Dwayne Johnson for everyone else. Right. And it, it tends to work like that. And you look like within my lifetime, like when, when I started getting into movies, like the, the movie that made me love movies was Terminator 2, which interestingly enough is, you know, it's an action movie that has this big father-son element to it. And, you know, that's around that time, though, that, you know, the big male, the masculine icons were, you know, the Schwarzeneggers and the Stallones. And that was that weird in-between point when Hollywood briefly found a way to get, you know, basically competent actors and bodybuilders at the same time. And then that segs into the 90s and Bruce Willis and Mel Gibson become a thing and you know and it, it moves in waves and you go to for instance the Matt Damon era and the Keanu Reeves era that kind of Bourne and the Matrix kind of time and it is interesting how this changes and yet all the time through it you've got James Bond existing as a character who pretty much defines you know British men if not you know international men and that character changes again according on according to you know what the trend is at the time well it's great that you mentioned James Bond because that that's been in conversation in the media um there's a lot of people who've been saying well why can't we have a black James Bond why can't we have a female James Bond and and uh, there's going to be a new James Bond movie coming out and everyone's asking well what is the portrayal going to be like in the era of me too is James Bond going to be held to account for his womanizing. <laughs> well, funny you say that because one of the big uh, news stories at the moment as regards James Bond is the fact that uh, shortly after her uh, her awards wins recently, you know, they snapped up uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, mm-hmm. the, uh, the writer and creator of Fleabag, you know, to punch up the script. And she has, in the last week, given interviews addressing, you know, people claiming, oh, they've sissied out the Bond franchise, they've got the girls in, it won't be the same. And even she has had to come forward and say, well, that's not the case at all. They brought me in because they don't know how to write women. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely fair, to be honest. No, they, they can't write women to save their lives. And I think we proved this 20 years ago when we had Denise Richards as a nuclear physicist named Christmas Jones. <laughs> 
I, there, but there, there is something to that, right? There's a lot of um, traditionally male-dominated franchises that have been doing the gender switch. Um, I mean, you, you look at Ghostbusters. I know that was very controversial for people. And then even the way that the Star Wars movies, the narrative has changed. And I read something one, about, probably about a year ago that Hollywood movies aren't using the hero's journey as much. They're starting to explore using the heroine's journey as the story arc. So Wonder Woman follows that and Star Wars, the new trilogy is probably following that. And you know, so now we have all these amazing female action heroes in the new Terminator film. I haven't seen it yet, but it seems to be more focused on the women action heroes, which I love because that's great. What happens to the role modeling of masculinity in that? You see, this is the thing. I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of whining and complaining. I mean, me personally, I mean, I, I, I tend to think of myself as a sort of mid-level alpha male type, but you know, I wouldn't describe myself as an outwardly, you know, prominent alpha male type, more a demure one. But the thing with these guys who go on and just complain about these things is it's, it's more over the concept rather than the actual reality of it. Ghostbusters, you to use that as an example, was a perfectly good movie. I, I, I laughed a fair few times. Uh, I thought the cameos were a little bit forced. And more than anything, I was just annoyed that it wasn't Ghostbusters 3. It was, you know, Ghostbusters 1B. Mm-hmm. You know, that was my thing as someone who, you know, grew up worshipping the Ghostbusters. These guys who complain about Star Wars has gone to the girls and everything like that. It's nonsense. I, one of my very best friends had had his first child recently, had a daughter. And we were having a conversation the very first time I met her. And he said, I'll be honest with you, I was in the delivery room because they'd kept the gender a secret. You know, they're not even from themselves. And he was in the delivery room and he said, and when a girl popped out, because for a moment I panicked because I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I don't know any girl stuff. I don't know pop culture for girls. I went, well, yeah, but you do know Star Wars and comic books. And those kind of nowadays do work for both genders. Like Star Wars is a lot more feminine, you know, a lot more female centric than it used to be. I wouldn't describe it as a female franchise. I would describe it as kind of split down the middle. I mean, there are three central, you know, young figures to the new Star Wars mm-hmm. movies, and two of them are still men. Mm-hmm. But it's, I don't quite get where this this painting of you know these franchises going all the way girl has come from. Okay, in the case of Ghostbusters, it makes a bit more sense. But yeah, you get where I'm coming from. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, for me, it's been entertaining to watch the way things get switched. Like the um, Ghostbusters did this in a very amusing way. And the TV show that I've seen do this is Supergirl. And that is the role that would have traditionally been the attractive, but not very bright female sidekick who gets anxious and worried for the superheroes but stays home <laughs> yeah. is fulfilled by a man. Yeah, the guy in the chair, to, to use the, the Spider-Man term, the guy in the chair in the case of Supergirl, you know, is a guy rather than, you know, being a, a woman, as is the case, for instance, on Arrow, yes. for example. But it's funny, funny you mentioned Supergirl because the uh, the thing amongst fans was, you know, given at that point Henry Cavill was Superman, you know, on the big screen, um, mm-hmm. was, isn't it interesting that Supergirl is currently the best version of Superman because they were telling Superman stories and they were getting away with what's perceived as the cheesiness of Superman purely by wrapping it up in a more feminine package and Mm -hmm. that being seen as less dorky because it was more girly. Fascinating. Yeah, it was an interesting thing that the internet seemed to bypass entirely, but and at the same time, you know, you, you look at the big screen and Superman now has to be dark and gritty and snap necks. You go to television, their version of Superman, albeit Supergirl in this case, a lot more traditional, fan friendly, you know, cheery, happy, optimistic. So let's talk for a minute then about the the male superheroes. I mean, you and I are both big fans of the superhero genres. I am admittedly not someone who's read through much of the comic books, but you know, I've loved all the Marvel franchise movies and I'm super excited that the new wave is going to focus on on more of the female characters. But there's there's definitely a huge impact that these uh figures have had like Iron Man and and the way that those characters and the portrayals of them have changed. What does a strong man do in society? It's interesting that you you pick out Iron Man particularly because I mean, obviously, I'm a huge Iron Man fan going back a long ways. But I mean, you know me; I've always been into the the, the reclusive billionaire type character superheroes. Uh, so Iron Man, Batman, they kind of you know, kind of work for me. But it's interesting when you look at, for instance, the traditional portrayal of Iron Man versus what we've had in cinema and how that's been updated for the times and how. Particularly, his attitude to women has changed rather substantially. 
from the journey from page to screen because you know that character was something of a philanderer rather <laughs> legendary i mean he's, he's literally based on howard hughes he's meant to be the greatest womanizer there is and you look at the very beginning of the very first one of those movies when i think he picks up a reporter at a, at a, at a, at a casino at an award ceremony or something and that's just deemed to be his regular you know night of the week is just i'll you know one night stand with some glamorous young hottie and then of course the the narrative shifts to become all about his relationship with gwyneth paltrow and how this loving relationship becomes his anchor and how that is very much something of the 21st century for a superhero rather than the 20th when it was always you were a reclusive character you got the love interest of one movie but if you ever got a sequel that was never happening again you know mm-hmm. michael michael keaton got one vicky vale uh, you know, he, you know. By the next movie, he had to have Catwoman. By the movie after that, we've replaced Batman. We've got um, Rene Russo getting replaced by uh, Nicole Kidman. I think was what happened, mm-hmm. and it, that that became the character for that pattern. It was interesting how that changed from the 20th century to the 21st. The exception to that rule, though, is Superman. Superman's always had Lewis Lane. Oh, very much so. But that was, you know, that's because that is such an intrinsic. I think he might be one of the only superheroes that has his love interest as both an equal partner in some aspects, but also so such an intrinsic part of the brand you know batman doesn't have a specific girlfriend whereas superman kind of does and spider-man for instance has mary jane but even then there are exceptions to that rule it, it depends on the brand well and superman as well is the one of the few superheroes whose uh, secret identity is the day job <laughs> very much yes right so he reverses that that role so that interesting his true identity is the is the super powered one and he's the one who has the long term steady relationship who are your role models from from the movies depends on it depends on context there are different there are different actors i adore for different things if we talk about like the you know the the icons i aspire to be the guy whose fashion senses i rip off and one-liners i use goes back to me for like you know starts off with like schwarzenegger he's the original you know he's you know the 80s childhood icon for me so you know, terminator 2 obviously being what it was and Obviously, my dad wasn't around very much at that sort of point in my life, and Terminator 2 is a movie that I discovered, and it had this wonderful father-son element, and, you know, always wanted to be John Connor in that movie. In fact, when we created me movies, one of the things that I actually went and did was inserted myself into a slide as John Connor, just for, you know, shits and giggles. But, you know, there are other actors in there. I mean, I always thought Bruce Willis was, you know, that was that was a masculine ideal. That was the modern cowboy. I mean, that's literally something that comes up in Die Hard. They compare him to Roy Rogers and, and Gary Cooper and characters like that. And as you get older, you get into your teens, then comic book characters start to become more of a thing. Musicians, uh, you know, certain TV actors like David Duchovny became a huge role model to me. And uh, uh, James Spader, actor I absolutely adore, and who's sort of generally... Uh, let's just say sinister performance is still for me the absolute benchmark of what an evil guy is supposed to sound like. I love that you mentioned, you know, these are all substitutes for an absent father. I, I remember your your dad was often sort of just busy with work. And so, and I, I think for a lot of a lot of people, a lot, a lot of young men have grown up with difficulties in their relationships with their dads, right? It's never, it's never ideal how it's depicted in the most feel-good of feel-good movies. It's never... Oh, no, it, it absolutely turns you into the whiniest of bitches when it comes to father-son stuff, <laughs> believe me. But <laughs> there's something about having multiple male figures that you can uh, kind of create a, a sort of sense of secure attachment to, and they become the... They, they fill in that gap where the father isn't able to turn up. Oh, absolutely. If you, if you remember that Jim Carrey movie, The, the Cable Guy, I think the whole premise of the, the ultimate reveal of that movie, I think, is just that uh, he was a kid with a negligent father who just got brought up by TV dads, as he put it. Like, different father figures from TV became his TV dads, and that's partly what caused his psychosis. So I, sh- I should probably start worrying, if we're honest. I have forgotten that about The Cable Guy. Wow. Yeah. That... That was a good movie. That's and and at the time taken as something of an anomaly and uh, considered, I think, briefly a bit of a failure. I think that's one of the movies that, in retrospect, people would look back and go, "There's a lot of insight in here that we didn't even think about back then." 
Very much so. I mean, it's a film that you'd sit there if you made this movie now, you know, you couldn't make it without involving the internet, for one thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it exists in a very specific time and place. For instance, you need people to have home phones and answering machines for that plot to work. It's very much of its time and place. And yet at the same time, it's quite prophetic in some of the things it says. Yeah. And Jim Carrey is an incredibly versatile actor and is someone who I think has done a really good job of playing male characters characters that are like that they're they're vulnerable and they're real and that to me is the is the anti-hero it's the antithesis of those perfect uh bodybuilder uh emotive <laughs> superhero but male figures it's uh, it's very interesting when you look at his body of work and you look for instance at his attitude to masculinity uh and the characters he plays and you look at the films he started out with and you look for instance at ace ventura who doesn't really have any lack of confidence whatsoever to then go to the mask in which he is just the most beta of males imaginable to then uh dumb and dumber in which he's Kind of halfway between the two, I'd argue. And then you go to things like the cable guy, which is, again, it's this extroverted character that's all blamed on this, this parentally induced psychosis. And even, uh, his Batman villain, uh, Batman Forever, when he was the Riddler, oh, is a quite out there flamboyant character who again starts out as a beta male figure and through rejection from a perceived hero father figure becomes, you know, the antithesis of that becomes, you know, the negative side of that coin. Wow. So Jim Carrey's been playing a lot of like incel types. (laughs) It's very much the case. (laughs) There's, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, like who are the actors who've made a career out of playing beta males? I mean, nowadays you look at actors like Jay Baruchel, for instance. I mean, he's not really what you'd call a star, but you know, for me, he is. He's a comedic, uh, a very, a very strong comedic performer from the last fifteen years. And you know him from movies such as uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice and She's Out of My League. And uh, you know, this is the end. Part of the Judd Apatow canon. An actor I like deeply. He said some stupid things regarding comic book movies in recent years, but other than that, seems a likable enough guy. Um, was originally going to be the villain in George Miller's Justice League, I believe, at some point. But uh, he is an actor, for instance, who tends to play specifically beta male characters, and it's become an established part of his... Or you look at Michael Sarah, for instance, uh, who's of the same sort of guild, and he tends to play quite weedy beta male characters. Or even Jason Bateman, who plays his dad in Arrested Mm -hmm. Development. Same kind of performance. So in the spectrum of what gets shown of the male experience in the movies, what's missing? There's, there's there's very little I would say there's very little room in in things at the moment for for genuine depth. It, I mean, you remember a couple of years ago, I think there was a video game came out called The Last of Us, and it was all about this this father-son, father-daughter relationship. I think people heralded the writing of it as, as being this groundbreaking thing. And I remember thinking, we should have more of that in the movie. Surely this is only three times longer than it would actually take to do it in a movie. A game, obviously, is about six hours gameplay nowadays. But uh, once you compact all that down, surely that is about movie length. Characters nowadays seem to be guided in movie form entirely by motivation and plot rather than what actually makes them tick i I remember uh i watched the irishman recently uh the the martin scorsese movie with de niro and and joe pesci and al pacino and the thing i noticed in it was that it was the first uh scorsese gangster movie proper gangster movie to be made after the existence Mm. of the sopranos and of course a huge thing about the sopranos was the sopranos was this wonderful study of what it took to be a man in a specifically aggressive in that case criminal enterprise and it was interesting how that had fed back you know that was obviously inspired by scorsese movies and how you know it fed back into the next scorsese movie how you know it's things like uh, han solo inspires firefly which then inspires the han solo movie it's the same kind of thing where the Sopranos has now fed back into Scorsese and you have these tough guy characters sat around having actual conversations about their relationships with their families and things like that I thought that was quite an interesting bit of nuance to, to put in a movie it's might explain why it's you know about four days long but 
It was well, worth and it. I think that's you know that's the endearing appeal of movies like The Sopranos. It's not it's not so much about the violence and the gang intrigue that's in there. It is an examination of what does it take to be a man in this world. I mean, like going back to the James Bond argument. I I, I mean that that's a very reactive uh, character in terms of how they they structure that character. He's always been very reactive in how they've portrayed him. So Pierce Brosnan's version of that, which I think the first James Bond I sort of came up with because he his his bond debuted when i think i was about 12 years old and um his character was very specifically crafted around the idea of okay we need a little bit more of a sensitive bond for the 90s he has to be a bit more the term they used actually at the time was euro friendly <laughs> so he had to that was it that like even his watch changed from a rolex to an omega because they wanted him to seem like a more accessible cool businessman for a European audience, uh, and that was that was a Euro friendly was the term. Well, this is also Britain being in the EU, <laughs> very, which is a very different story then than it is now. And uh, but noticeably, as that character went on, as the nineties went on, as action films changed and Jerry Bruckheimer movies became more of a thing, even that version of the character did get slightly more harder edged. And there's a you know there's a moment I think in Tomorrow Never Dies in 1997 when he, he actually kills a man he doesn't need to. You know, it, it, it's it's actually kind of a strange moment. You're like, oh okay. Okay, it's interesting that you went there. That was quite brutal and merciless. Okay. When they recast that character, when that became Daniel Craig's James Bond, it was very interesting how he changed into becoming what I've referred to more often than as a doorman, where Bond sim- simply stopped being this intelligent super spy and became a doorman, for all intents and purposes. His, his job was literally to punch everyone in the room rather than solve a great mystery. You see this you see this now in, in the last couple of years with Batman, for instance, character who you can literally pick up any random comic in a store and you've got at least a 30% chance of it saying Batman, the world's greatest detective on it. That man does not solve crimes anymore. He barges into rooms and beats people to death. And it's very interesting how that has shifted over time. I have lots of thoughts on that that have nothing to do with the topic of this podcast. Um, So how realistic are the portrayals of masculinity? I mean, do are we setting up unrealistic ideals for young men to aspire to be like? I think we do. I mean, recently we had the 20th anniversary of Fight Club, which obviously in, in today's context is a very problematic film because of you know some of the things it, it it relates to in the current day it was actually weirdly less problematic when it came out because it, it spoke to this imagined subset of men in the you know the late 20s early 30s and how they saw themselves you know in in relation to this consumerist world this homogenized world that was erupting around them you think of the ikea scene for instance in bike club in which they refer to the ikea nesting instinct and uh, moments like brad pitt asking uh, they're very homoerotic moment in which uh, I think Brad Pitt is sat in a bath uh, whilst Edward Norton simply sits next to him and they have a conversation, which is not something that two straight men ever do, incidentally. But uh, in, in Fight Club, that moment happens and they have a conversation in which I think Brad Pitt asks, do you know what a duvet is? The answer being, you know, it's, yeah, it's like a comforter. And Brad Pitt says, yeah, it is. But why do we know what a duvet is? Like, what what reason is there for us to know? It? What has that done to our hunter-gatherer instinct? And it was... It was, you know, it had, you know, thematic weight at the time because it was, you know, a, a movie about the rise of a world in which, you know, there were no independent coffee shops. It was all Starbucks and Volkswagen and Apple. And you look at a movie now and you sit and think, well, actually, some of the things it says, you know, are agelessly true. They're just timeless. Uh, There's a moment in which they're on a bus, for instance, and he, uh, Brad Pitt points at a, uh, a Calvin Klein underwear ad and said, look at that. Is that what men are meant to look like? And they just snigger. And you think that that bit's actually kind of timeless, and that that I think we need kind of more stuff like that. the The perspective, the the, the perception of men nowadays seems to either be alpha male as bad, beta male as bad, but for different reasons to do with seen as I think just being too effeminate. Yeah, the beta male is a victim of circumstances. The alpha male has had lots of privilege and and has. <laughs> been born into glory oh very much very much the case and you uh you know you like you say you look at the, the modern action stars for instance you think well keanu reeves is the super skinny one uh dwayne johnson is the super large one there's not really anyone in the middle it's not like michael chiklis's action career ever got going there's not really a, there's not really what you would call an average size male action hero for instance what about nicholas cage 
I think Nicolas Cage's action movie days are, uh, the, well, the best ones are sadly long behind him. He uh, he has descended well and truly into uh, upper middle age. I mean, because he's, he's pushing his 50s now, surely, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I mean, he's an actor who started off playing those kind of like secondary beta male sort of characters um there were you know victims of circumstance and and then suddenly he made this switch into being these alpha males and it never landed as genuine for me i always looked at it and i i could never see the character i always saw the actor for some reason i can i can understand that entirely and you do look at that point and it is interesting i think I just got pointed out in a, a movie bob video recently that that man had uh, i think it was face off con air and the rock all open within months of each other and you look at the spectrum he plays within just those three massive action movies. And like The Rock, for instance, a very beta male character who kind of, I think, discovers, not discovers his masculinity, but discovers how to weaponize his own intelligence as the series goes on. So he discovers, as the movie goes on, so he discovers his own uh, alpha male side through his own means, like an alternative one. Uh, Cameron Poe in Con Air was, for instance, a very alpha figure. And then you look at... Um, face-off in which he literally gets to play both at, in the same movie, which is genuinely terrific. <laughs> so you talked about um, the scene in Fight Club where the, the two guys are in the bath and uh, th- there's definitely some homoerotic undertones there. That is something, I mean, homosexuality and, and men's sexuality is something that films are starting to deal with very differently. And I mean, we're, we talked about the way that men are interacting with women on the screen and that's definitely changing. I'm sure I, I cannot imagine the kinds of conversations that are happening in the script writing rooms in the wake of Me Too and so many different producers and bigwigs being under the spotlight um but the there's definitely a softening around the rigidity of how men's sexuality has been portrayed i think most definitely i mean the the one character that leaps to mind in the last couple of years where i actually think huh it's actually kind of impressive that they've gone with that was of all people john constantine uh who most of us i think know as being played by keanu reeves in the movie constantine but comes from a, a, a comic series called Hellblazer, is a British character who physically is modelled on Sting originally. So kind of makes the idea of getting Keanu Reeves to play him very bizarre. Um, but they recently revived the character uh, for television. He's part of the uh, the established universe they have with Arrow and The Flash, and he's now part of the Legends of Tomorrow crew. And as soon as he's become part of the Legends of Tomorrow crew, which is a very LGBT-friendly um series anyway characters on that there are and there are a number of, of characters on there with uh with differing sexualities and it's interesting to me that they waited till they had him on that show to then actually explore the fact that according to comics law the character swings both ways and they went with that not as a salacious idea but as the idea that he actually had a relationship with another man and i thought that's not something i'd ever actually seen depicted of a previously known as straight character in mainstream media well bisexual relationships for men and television shows do not they just don't happen and I think, you know, the the superhero shows, just like with science fiction, there's some leniency, there's some leeway there about being able to show the stories that if we were to say this is real life, people would not be as accepting of it. And and I, I think Legends of Tomorrow does a really good job of pushing that envelope. Oh, no, very much so. So it sounds like there's the film industry has still some catching up to do, but the TV shows can kind of get away with a bit more. Well, TV gen- TV generally moves faster than than film anyway. It's it's always been the one luxury that television has, unless you're working for streaming, in which case if you're working for a streaming network, it tends to be treated as if you're just making a really long movie. Whereas if you're making it on a weekly show, then you've usually only got like six episodes backlog. You know, you can you can write this week's events in, you know, in six episodes time kind of thing. Um because of that, you do look at it and you do think it is interesting. For instance, like on, on the, the movie side, like we only recently had a superhero movie, you know, fronted by a woman on the Marvel side this last year. We only had a, a superhero movie fronted by a black man within the last two years. Um, you know, DC had their their female-led movie two years ago as well. It's amazing how long these things are taking to happen. But then you look at the people making the decisions and it 
does start to paint a picture. In the case of Marvel, there's a very obvious uh, culprit there because he's been named and shamed many times. But it's about the voices in the room where the decisions are being made and those voices are not that varied. Well, talking about that feedback of, um, you know, one thing influencing another, we now have so much um, on-demand television and the streaming services and, you know, Netflix has changed everything because you can't just kid yourself about people enjoying a show. You can actually see how many times somebody has watched the show. And if people are not watching it, it, it's very, very clear. It's not just that they're watching it because there was nothing else good on telly. It's they're making a conscious choice to not watch it. And I, and that definitely seems to be changing the way that what else is getting made. Like the new shows that are getting made are being influenced by the feedback from the viewers. That That's a different paradigm, right? Because it used to be more that these media empires would decide what the consumers wanted. That's very much the case. What What's happened is because we don't have channel surfing, as a concept now. You know, it used to be that, you know, you got the TV remote and you just cycle through until, you know, you just flick through the channels until you found something you want to watch. It's literally the reason the Simpsons are coloured yellow. It's so that you would notice them and stop. Um, But with channel surfing, you know, gone the way of the dinosaur, it now becomes a case of, okay, we need to make as much content as we can that covers absolutely everything that everyone could want. And that'll be that'll be it. We'll find its audience. It'll be a smaller audience maybe, but it will find an audience because there is someone out there that wants to see it. And it's going to be very interesting now that the streaming wars have officially begun. And uh, it, it, with that happening, with more films going straight to streaming, you know, like Lady and the Tramp, for instance, is a big release today that has been made exclusively for a streaming platform, which is frankly staggering when you consider that Disney released three of those things in cinemas this last just this year alone. With more movies being made exclusively for streaming, it's going to be very interesting seeing them cater for those crowds. I I mean, I've always been quite disappointed at the portrayal of male sexuality in mainstream, particularly mainstream action films. And the example I always think of is back in 2005 when the second Transporter movie came out. There was a long-held belief, I think there was a statement made by the studio, and it was verified by, by a couple of other people, and then the movie opened, and it was proved to be false. And the idea was that Jason Statham's incredibly, you know, camp at times and almost homoerotic in others character of the transporter was going to be sort of repurposed as the first proper gay male action hero. And when you saw the film, there were subtle hints that that had at one point been the case, but it absolutely got erased. And then when they made the third one, they did away with it entirely. And I always can't help but think, like, there, there is room in the industry for that. There's more than enough room. Uh, particularly considering that when we apply that to female action characters, we don't seem to care whatsoever for their sexuality. And you look at, for instance, Charlize Theron in Atomic Blonde, where it's never even a point of debate that she will sleep with another woman just as she will just as easily sleep with a man. It's never brought up at all. I think it, there's a literally an eyebrow raise at some point. You think that doesn't extend to the other gender. Though. Yeah, there's definitely a double standard that's happening in, um, you know, we don't want to make it too gay, but it's fine if the women are gay. Yes, that absolutely seems to be the compromise they're willing to make on that one, doesn't it? <laughs> so I, I have a question, just to get a little more... Uh, I invite you into a little more vulnerability here, um, if that's okay. Feel free. So we talked a lot about like the the male role models and so forth. I I really want to know what was it like for you because you you come like me. We, we come from mixed backgrounds, and having having a mixed ethnic background and looking at movies and television and not seeing a lot of people who were Arab portrayed in a positive light. Oh, God, yeah. Um, what was that like for you? Well, to, you know, to be honest, I never thought about it for a long, long time. I was just just thought of myself as an oddity. But, uh, I mean, particularly you look at the age I am and the, the, the films that were out in my formative years, and generally speaking, there were no cool Arab heroes ever. That just never happened. I think occasionally they would slap some fake tan on Antonio Banderas and <laughs> allow him to play a shake or something. That, 
I think they literally did that at one point, and it was called the Thirteenth Warrior. Yeah. That's the only time I can remember, you know, an Arab sort of action hero in that era. And then I think uh, I, I remember Odette Bay in the Mummy, the character that Odette Fair played. Odette Bay, I think his name was, who was the character who literally showed up with the the cool outfit and the badass sword and gave all the exposition and then did some ass kicking. I thought that was a great character, but no, there still really isn't much of a. You know, so there's no um, no Arab male presence in in movies. Like we need to get Rami Malek an action movie, clearly, because until that happens, we're all dead in the water. Well, and, and a lot of the Arab actors who have made it have played into passing as white. I mean, Rami Malek uh, can can pass as white, and it's that thing of like, do you have a tan or not? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, he does get he does get to be a Bond villain now, so you know there is that. Well, and that's the other thing is is there's a lot of casting people of color as villains well you know it's funny you say that there was very i don't know if you watched the show it's always sunny in philadelphia um they did an episode recently in which the characters became a test audience for a movie and it was like a schlock action movie and they they basically the whole thing is a meta commentary on just the state of, of hollywood cinema and one of the characters in a moment of brilliantly scripted ignorance starts explaining that he couldn't tell who the good guys and the bad guys were because they were the same race <laughs> and if they were diff- if they were if they were a different race he would just know who to hate because naturally you hate people who are different than you and he says this with no contention of prejudice whatsoever he just says this is a statement of complete fact and i thought that was just an absolutely brilliant statement on exactly what happened with happens with ethnicity and, film. and it, it's very specifically well not always but it tends to be more done to the male figures i mean going back to james bond the women of other races are exotic and maybe dangerous but they are <laughs> you know, sexually objectified very very hugely but the men of other of, of non-white races are um villains and to be suspicious actually any man who's not English or American is probably going to be a villain in James Bond movies, but no. You see, mind you, you say that. I think I saw Spectre, and the moment Andrew Scott turned up in that, I thought, "Well, that guy's evil, clearly." And then I think the actual reveal was it was meant to be a twist. He actually was evil. You're like, well, that was kind. Of, he's known for playing a villain. Where did you think this was going? So, growing up seeing this, it wasn't ever something that you internalized. You just saw your. It was just like, oh well. There, there isn't anyone who looks like me who's in these superhero roles. Not really. No, my, 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 you know, cappuccino skin was not something. The, the lack of my cappuccino skin on <laughs> cinema screens was not something I, I. It didn't keep me up at night. Yeah. But I do, as as I've gotten older, I do. For instance, I did look at the reception to Black Panther a couple of years ago and think that must be nice because you know it had that. There was that great moment. There was that, that conversation about you know representation matters, mm-hmm. and I remember Black Panther coming out and I went to a couple of screenings of Black Panther and I went to a couple of press, uh, actual dedicated press show ones where a large percentage of the audience were you know black families and how how much the kids were really into it and how much their dads were just cheering it all on I saw it with a black friend of mine who was having the time of his life I loved the movie because I loved the movie but for him it meant an entirely different thing and I remember looking at him at one point thinking that must just be amazing like that must be the greatest feeling in the world. And I'd imagine that there were young girls who felt that when they saw Wonder Woman. And you said, like, I, you know, I can't really see it happening anytime soon for particularly me, because there aren't many, I think, you know, Arab male superheroes, for instance, or action figures. But, you know, you said, I understand diversity matters. And it must be a great thing. And it must be awesome to not have to live with Antonio Banderas in fake town. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I look forward to seeing Arabs being portrayed as anything other than terrorists in movies, because I think that has been the trope for far, far too long. Um, yeah. That was actually, it's funny you said that, interestingly enough, there is, uh, I think he's a, a Moroccan-born actor who, I forget his name offhand, he became the star of a series called Scorpion. And I always found him one of the most fascinating figures uh, in in the modern media because he was playing an Irish guy who was raised in America from, I think, the age of nine. He has a completely American accent, and he's physically quite Mm Arab-looking. And it was the most bizarre bit of casting I've ever seen. Hilariously, if you saw the guy he's based on, uh, very, very different look. Mm -hmm. Just he got very lucky in casting. Let's just say that it would be like if I cast Colin Farrell to play me. You know, it would just 
talk talk about a high opinion of yourself. Well, hey, Colin Farrell was cast. He's Irish, and he was cast as Alexander the Great. He played a Greek. <laughs> right, yes, you, you understand? It's Colin Farrell in fake tan, isn't it? It's the same exact. Uh, exact. He's got some bronzer on. Yeah, yeah. They, they. I. I mean, I was amused by the decision for that movie to that all the Greek men were played by Irish men. Uh, being of Irish and Greek background myself, so. But again, going back to the the topic of masculinity, and and you look at films like Alexander, and the one I always think of as well is Troy specifically. Oh, and if you look at the depiction of masculinity in Troy, which is you know a movie you know about a war fought over a woman, in which you know you look at the two sides that are fighting for one she is a possession, for the other she is a subject of love. You know, it's the Helen of Troy story. It's you know the, the Trojan horse. We know how this story plays out, but it's very. Very interesting to think this is you know this was the gayest time in human existence <laughs> and you know doesn't come up once and they belittle Orlando Bloom constantly through that movie for being very beta for being very effeminate and you think it's interesting that you do that but you left out any of the sexuality side of this as well so that's kind of having your cake and eating it there. there's definitely a, a sterilized um version of things and and, i mean this is a this is something that i think is endemic in our whole society that we we're still in a very sex negative society it's still very taboo to talk about and we've made a lot of progress that we can have conversations uh, analyzing movies in this way but um it's very taboo and yet at the same time there's like you know the stuff that's happening with like I said before, like, well, they're all Hollywood executives. And it's like, well, who's actually filling up these studios and what's going on behind the scenes? There's definitely a double standard there. And what are they avoiding? And I think as well, like looking at the Me Too stuff lately and the way that certain figures are treated, certain vilified figures are treated, I think based on their perceived masculinity. So for instance, we don't treat Woody Allen the same way we treat Harvey Weinstein. Because they because they are two very different ends of uh, ends of the masculinity spectrum, and I, I it's my belief that that is partly why those two are treated so differently. When people have very deeply rooted issues surrounding Woody Allen, yes, you know, dependent on what you how you personally feel about it. I don't want to get into my side of it. I have a weird relationship with Woody Allen movies anyway and his body of work, but. We we vilify, for instance, Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey, for instance, is a very alpha figure, but is also a gay man. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, we have Harvey Weinstein, who is even more of an alpha figure, but a straight man. And it's interesting that we tend to vilify the more alpha figures than the beta. Rowan Polanski is another one where we think, I think if he were more of an outwardly aggressive figure we would treat him differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's definitely a lot about the the positional power. The more power someone seems to have, the more of a threat they are, the more aggressive we become. Or even just the perception of yes. how much power they yeah. have. Yeah, perceived power is, is exactly it. How has your relationship to yourself as a man changed as you've grown up? And do you see that being reflected in the way that media is changing and maturing? I think to be, you do see, you noticeably see a lot more screwed up young male, like sort of men my age now are perceived as being a lot more screwed up than they used to be, which you could argue is pretty much, you know, right for the times in a sense. Uh, the, I mean, I, I mean, I live with a, a guy my age, I have a male roommate and we, uh, the things we watch on TV outside of the, you know, the, the, the Star Wars stuff and the Marvel stuff and things like that. I mean, we literally, we still watch Entourage. We're currently re-binging Entourage after 15 years. And again, you, that's a very problematic show when you use today's values upon it. But we take it as that. We we take, we watch that show. We still see the parts of ourselves from that time, you know, reflected back at us. But we do it with this knowing context that we're not anywhere like that now. No, no one wants to be Ari Gold or Turtle or Johnny Drama in 2019, but you did in 2005, which, you know, you kind of make peace with. And it's, again, you, you look at the perception of characters who are, I think, uh, characters generally, like I say, they're a lot more screwed up because they're generally at least a little bit more introspective now. They do weigh up their decisions and they do bang their head against walls and bemoan their own stupidity, which is not something they used to do before, to be fair. 
Do you think there's any uh, any examples out there of what uh, healthy masculinity actually is? We've talked a lot about this difference between alpha the... and beta, but neither of those are necessarily like the healthiest masculinity. They're not, but I think there is a healthy halfway emerging, and it doesn't seem to be reflected entirely, I think, within fictional characters. It seems to be coming through more presenter-type personalities. One of my favourite personalities in the media right now, for instance, is uh, Hassan Minaj, who is a performer, again, feeding into my want-to-see-someone-like-me-on-a-screen. Hassan Minaj, he's more ethnic than I am, uh, but again, has that balance of, I have had the weedy experience being the weedy teen, and I have, at the same time, I'm still a confident man in the 21st century, and I've still got a brain. And I like the way he portrays himself. I like his sense of masculinity. I think that's uniquely his, but that's someone for whom he gets to... Because that's the other thing as well. Um, in the last 20 years, you know, geek culture mm. has emerged. And that has that has proven a bridge between those two subsets of the male ego. And, you know, I look at my lifetime when, you know, when I was a kid, you could, you know, you get the shit beaten out of you for, you know, I like Star Wars. Whereas nowadays, you know, it's, it's the biggest thing on the planet. You know, I could, you know... You, you could absolutely get a piss ripped out of you if you're reading a Captain America comic in 2001, flash forward to 2019, you'll get patted on the back and asked what your favourite storyline was. Very, very different times because, you know, we have had the age of the geek. We have had intellect becoming more mainstream. It used to be the idea of the lantern jaw, you know, ruled the roost. Now it can actually be the smartest guy in the room, but you got to know how to throw a punch. It seems to be that sort of a balance. Yeah, I like what you said about the role models being more of the presenters. You got people like John Oliver. Um, what did he do? He he bought like a whole bunch of medical debt and forgave it. Like- <laughs> well, I mean, again, you look at like his uh, in the last twenty four hours, for instance, he uh, he won a lawsuit that had gone on for two years. I think the case got dropped, and it was a, a very old school uh, Trumpian era coal magnate named Bill Murray, uh, Bob Murray, who had taken him to court and tied him up in litigation for two years. And John Oliver's solution to that was simply to throw an enormous musical number in the centre of Times Square, in which he threw his hat to the sky and had fireworks declare, eat shit, Bob, <laughs> which might be one of the greatest things. And you sit there and think, to be fair, an alpha male wouldn't do that. Unless you had ever been the bullied, you never yeah. would have done that. Because it, it that's that's an expression of that's an expression of the absolute celebration of I'm tired of being treated like that. And I absolutely respect the hell out of him for it. But again, yeah, John Oliver, absolutely great one. Trevor Noah, also yes, one I enjoy very yeah, much. Absolutely. Love Trevor Noah's commentaries on things. So the emerging masculinity, it, it's it's honoring the geek. There's honoring um intelligence. And, and an ability to take action. And in what you shared there about John Oliver, it's it's kind of the everyday hero. Like we don't necessarily need to don superhero suits to be heroic good men that you can just do amazing things and and be a hero in an everyday kind of way. Very much so. I mean you you mentioned I mean you mentioned Captain Picard earlier, I think, as well, and you look at Captain Picard as being Probably kind of the perfect aspirational male figure in a sense, because again, that's going back to you could be the smartest guy in the room, but need to throw a punch. That's literally that character. You know, he is the cultured man. He is the refined, intelligent, sage man, but he is perceived, he's depicted himself as coming from kind of a lumbering, idiotic, you know, shoot first, ask questions later kind of an upbringing, kind of a background. We, I think they, they literally at one point show us him in his youth as something of a rebellious. Uh, rebellious, hard-swinging, womanizing gambler. Uh, and then at some point he becomes Tom Hardy as well. But again, evolves into this perfect figure of the all-rounded, perfect-for-all-purposes male figure. Mm-hmm. And he's coming back, which is very exciting. Oh, I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> so is there is there anything out there that you think depicts what you would like to see as the the masculine role model there was um i I think there's so many moments in the irishman that i thought actually were were strangely progressive like i say about the the idea of those tried and tested mobsters particularly being played by those actors being played by de niro and pesci and, and and al pacino there was something about seeing those guys 
sitting around talking about their families and things that I thought that was strangely progressive for what that movie was meant to be, which is like this greatest hits of the mobster genre. Um, as In terms of uh, the depiction of Men at the Moment, one that I am enjoying, uh, enjoying maybe the wrong word, but one that I'm fascinated by at the moment is uh, Steve Carell on The Morning Show, which is uh, the new Apple TV Plus uh, Me Too series in which he's a, a morning talk show host who is uh, you know, kicked out in the wake of a Me Too scandal. He's replaced by a young woman played by Reese Witherspoon, and he leaves his, his on-air partner, Jennifer Aniston, behind. But the interesting thing about this, and the, the, the series hasn't gotten to this bit yet, but I am intrigued to see what they do with it, is the fact that he's not perceived as necessarily having done anything uh, sp- particularly illegal or illicit, He's portrayed as merely having had affairs, like consensual affairs. But as he puts it himself, the allegation is enough. And the way that's being played at the moment, I think is fascinating, particularly because it's Steve Carell doing it. And the in the earnest likability that comes with simply having Steve Carell play the character is I can't tell if it's a bait and switch, if they're going to take that in another direction, or if it's you know being played absolutely in earnest, in which case I'm, I'm equally fascinated, to be honest. Well, and that's fascinating because, and I'm definitely going to have to check that show out, because there's so much that the media offers us to be able to process our own experience. I mean, look at how many Vietnam War movies there have been. And I think a huge part of that is because there's so many war vets who just needed to have a way to externally process their traumatic experiences. And we're in this state where so many men I talk to are going, what the fuck do I do? I don't even know how to like talk to colleagues or I don't want to make a wrong step. And like, like you're saying, like in this storyline, they're consensual affairs, but the allegation is enough. Um, and there hasn't been much handling of that in, um, in the, the consumer media, it's talked about in the news and, and it gets very cutthroat in the reporting, but to actually have something as a as a television show, as as something in the movies, where people who are going through that can start to explore those ideas externally. I agree, and we are. I think in the UK, we I think it's mid January we get the arrival of Bombshell, which is the story of the the three women who took down I think Roger Ailes at Fox News, and it's uh, Margot Robbie and Charlize Theron and Nicole Kidman. So you know this this thing's going to get some Oscar noms at some point. Um, but I'm very intrigued. I think I'm seeing that in a few weeks' time. But I'm very intrigued to see how they depict the male figures of that story if they are because I mean with those three actresses. You you would assume that there's a lot of nuance to it. I'm told the performances are incredible. But for me, I expect those performances to be incredible. I expect there will be nuance, but I, I'm i very intrigued to see how the male figures of that story are portrayed. Are they simply going to be outright monsters? Are they going to be monsters with depth? Or are they going to go the Corel route of there might be one or two where it is just the allegation and it's not necessarily that they're inherently awful people? But it's 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 definitely piqued my interest that one. That's something that's bombshell. I think. Well, I think that's really important. As how is the media going to portray these figures? I mean, you know, no one wants to write a movie that's sympathetic to Hitler. Um, <laughs> no, no, no one wants that one. <laughs> um, and and uh, and I think I think John Cusack did that once. Oh God, um, but it's. It's interesting to how, how we're going to be portraying these figures is going to affect how we continue to relate to um, men who are accused of improprieties and how I think men are going to be able to relate to themselves. Like one of the most crippling things that I noticed, like working as a coach is the shame factor. And I see that very much influenced by the stories that people have. So, you know, guys like, well, I, you know, I, I did something that wasn't great and my partner was upset. And it's actually not a huge deal in that circumstance. But because they see things depicted in movies and in stories, it brings up all this like bigger shame. And so think- do we treat these, you know, if we're, if we're talking about fictional movies or fictional depictions, or do we treat them as some like big bad alpha villain 
Or are we looking at the more human story of this is actually a beta male who's a victim of circumstance and, you know, had some kind of childhood trauma that turned him into a villain, uh, which is kind of like the new Joker movie. And, and like, uh, do we, do we, have a portrayal of that that allows some empathy and sympathy. Well, that goes back to, you know, what you were saying earlier about the Ghostbusters and the reception to that. And I think, to be honest, these kind of things happening in the Me Too era where men are being held accountable does lead to this... I mean, not not sympathetic, but, you know, understandable in concept, at least, backlash in which it is about insecurity and it is about fear and it is about men suddenly feeling threatened. Oh, I, oh, I can't be a man in the traditional sense, as I always understood it. But then those do tend to be the kind of guys who don't seem to realise that that is an outdated model anyway. I wonder if there are any of the comic book heroes who could represent that journey, that journey of, I mean, the the story of redemption is a classic one and it's one that sells. And there's got to be some story of redemption somewhere where the, the man has been the womanizer and the philanderer and, and has abused his power and then comes into an awakening and makes a journey to become more of a a healthy masculine and atone for his wrongs and be accountable and, and still be a strong man an even better man at the end of the day. No, I don't. I can't think of one offhand, although I will say Amazon's the boys has a pretty uh, brilliant for all the wrong reasons archetype in one of its main antagonists. I I would love to see something like that. And I, I think that that would be, I mean, that would be powerful. I think that, would be relatable for the experience a lot of men seem to be going through right now. Very much the case. I mean, to be honest, the the, the way in which uh, male characters to treat women has noticeably improved in recent years. I mean, especially in the last couple of decades, they're noticeably less vile than they used to be but i mean because one of my i mean it's like i I love schwarzenegger movies but even i'll watch the movie commando and just think this this whole arnie radon chong thing is just ridiculous i mean she she may as well be his waitress for the entire movie it has about it has about that much level of nuance to it and yet that was the acceptable norm in those days and and i think for a lot of the actors and writers and people in the industry who were part of that heyday like they've probably been inappropriate not because they were trying to be malicious but that's just how you interacted with people very much the case but i mean to say the 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 attitude because obviously you know film as a film and television really any audiovisual medium still tends to be a male dominated mm-hmm. field so you do find yourself wondering at times that just how is a is a field dominated by this gender so poor at providing it with any real you know depth or again nuance and you think there are people who can do it joss whedon was very good at it i mean his mal reynolds is one of my favorite fictional heroes ever like talk about a role model for me mal reynolds from firefly every time but uh even joss whedon would turn out in reality to be well you know allegedly something of a scumbag which kind of undermines a lot of the kudos we gave him before mm-hmm. that, really. It's it's disappointing when that happens. But I, I think that just like, you know, you're saying you, you look back and watch Entourage and, and it's like, yeah, back back in the day, you looked up to these people and nowadays you wouldn't. Mm. And and that, you know, people talk about, well, should we still watch the movies of, of uh, writers and producers and actors who have been problematic? Cancel culture, as I believe it's Cancel called on culture. Twitter. Like, who, who was it? Uh, was it? Oh, Louis C.K. Yeah, Louis C.K. And like all other actors, like as soon as they're accused of something, they're written out of a show, they're cancelled. And, and I think that, I mean, I don't disagree with doing that, but I think that in terms of how we then relate to their body of work, how do we reconcile mm. that? Uh, there is a very, uh, a very difficult example with Louis C.K. actually, in that there was an episode of one of his shows that did really toe the line and was dealt with as a moment of character drama. And the episode was quite uncomfortable to watch. And if you watch it now, which good luck tracking it down, because I'm pretty sure they've wiped him from the internet, um, if you watched it now, would prove even more difficult. But it's a, a moment in which, it's an episode in which there is a moment between himself and Pamela Adlon and it it gets read the wrong way. And if you take into consideration everything that happened with Louis C.K. You know, in the years afterwards, you can't help but feel that maybe he was trying to tell us mm-hmm. something. And 
Louis C.K. is not that much more extreme than like Bill Hicks, who, you know, I mean, he passed away in the 90s, but Bill Hicks was doing way more inappropriate things on stage and and in his life, allegedly. And yet, because he's dead, no one touches it. Well, that's generally how it works. Yes, the, uh, the 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 dead in most cases outside of Jimmy Savile are immune from being vilified in the press today. But yeah, this question of how we relate to these works is something that I think is it's really interesting. I mean, for me, like in terms of playing music, and um, you know, do I, uh, you know, is it not okay to play Michael Jackson or Freddie Mercury or anybody else who's ever been accused of anything? R. Kelly seems to be the big use. Yeah, well, I never listened to R. Kelly anyway, so that's never been an issue for me. But <laughs> it, you know, it's important to look at what what are we consuming and like what was going on under the surface and i always remember um my my college lecturer a man named uh, man named brendan brendan Cumberch, he uh, he once told me in the uh, this was in the early noughties we were talking about the x men of all things and uh, we it was, it was in relation to a, a piece of critical analysis work and he said he pointed out that one of the most interesting things about that brand was that if you had made an X-Men movie in the 1990s, the de facto lead would have been Cyclops. But if you did it in the 2000s, as they did, it had to be Wolverine. I always found that a very interesting thing to note because it's obviously completely true. Nowadays, we tend to, it tends to be more Xavier, I think, but uh, because he's a sort of a father figure and it allows them to just go everywhere with it. But it is interesting how the perception of who leads the X-Men went from being the level-headed, you know, rather more lean, good Boy Scout type figure to being the more violent, burly one in the 2000s. Yeah, it was the, it was the rebel, the, the, the rebel at the back mm. of the class who became the lead. And then when they did the X-Men prequels, it definitely became more uh, Professor Xavier, but sort of sharing that with Wolverine. Well, yeah, because you've got a crowbar Wolverine in every chance you got. That's how those yeah. movies work. And I'm curious to see what they're going to do with the, the reboot of it. And I, I think I read that the only character who's carrying over with the same actor is going to be Deadpool. So, you know, obviously I'm, re- <laughs> I'm rooting for Deadpool to be the central character. <laughs> Which, again, actually, you know, we're talking about, if we talk about the sexuality of movie characters, Deadpool, my, my friend Chris, Chris Honeyset from The Mirror, um, constantly takes shots at, uh, Deadpool and there being no real concept of, no real depiction of the wider spectrum of his sexuality. Deadpool is generally referred to as being pansexual. Mm-hmm. And there is, there's a gag about it in the second movie where it's, uh, it's implied that if he's drunk enough, he'll plow Colossus. But other than that, he is depicted as a straight white man. But I mean, there is a scene in the first movie where he, uh, he and his partner are having some sexual explorations, and and they're they're he's getting pegged, <laughs> which I think probably was as far yes. as they could push that edge for a, a mainstream Hollywood movie. <laughs> And, you know, you say that, I remember, I think, uh, I, I forget when, what the actual date is for International Women's Day. Yeah. Is it March? It's March. I think it was a year after Deadpool. Uh, it was the first International Women's Day after Deadpool. I was sat in a, I was sat in the lounge at 20th Century Fox waiting for a screening. And I was talking to, there were a couple of name critics. And... I noticed, I think I saw on Twitter or something that it was International Women's Day. I went, ah, it's International Women's Day. Ah, happy Deadpool Day, everyone. And uh, they, they jokingly said, no, nah, I don't get it. I went, you know, because of the, because of the, the pegging scene in Deadpool. And they're like, no, what's, what's pegging? Well, oh, okay. This is, this is going to get awkward. <laughs> Sit down, boys. And we were, so we were talking about men in their fifties, to be fair. But yeah, it, it was a, it was a fascinating moment, I have to admit. And, more that they both look mortified that that was in a movie and they didn't remember it. That's fascinating. They didn't even remember it was there. I mean, it is just like, you know, two seconds of, of a montage, but um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't even remember it was there. It was great. <laughs> I think Deadpool, it, it's challenging. And I, I definitely get the impression that if he could get away with it, he would be playing the character a lot more with his sexuality but um still you know with i don't think that's happening no, under disney is it's it probably not honest. i mean i'd love to see deadpool as a disney princess yeah. but um you know wanting something is <laughs> although actually speaking of speaking of disney i i will put smart money here and now in 2019 that when they do something with the x-men eventually they will play up the lgbtq 
the mm-hmm. creds of the X-Men. Well, they, I genuinely think that'll happen. Disney definitely wasn't afraid to show um, alternative relationships in uh, Once Upon a Time. I don't know if you ever watched Once Upon a Time. Um, I did because it became my favourite laundry folding show. The Once Upon a Time, the fairy tale one with Robert Carlyle. Yes. And they... Much to my surprise, they they showed um, different kinds of. Yeah, you know, I mean, there was there was an LGBTQ element that definitely came into it, and uh, you know, not in the main characters necessarily, but it was there. And there was even like a polyamorous storyline uh, in one episode that was, you know, blink and you'll miss it, but it was there, and uh, that was incredible to see from Disney. The depiction of masculinity and the depiction of sexuality are two things that seem to go very much hand in hand, and it does seem to be that the, the depiction of, of, of masculinity has to fall within a certain, you know, cisgender, heterosexual depiction of men. And I do think those two things are two, are, the, are things that should be considered in the same breath every time. Mm-hmm. We're just beginning to see that change. Very much so. Like I say, I mean, we could have had this a long time ago if they just made the transporter gay. <laughs> but... Uh, <sighs> I mean, I tell you, I still want to see, I still want to see Jason Statham as a gay action hero. I think it'd be amazing. I think it would be the most successful action franchise ever. I I've, I think after this conversation, I would love to see uh, an Arab gay superhero <laughs> <laughs> who, uh, well, you know, Marvel are doing the Marvel are doing the Arab girl superhero. So that's, that's happening. Great. Yeah, that that's some progress, but I, I don't know. I think I think there isn't. I think there is a gay Arab male Green Lantern in the comics. Great. I think he'll he'll probably appear for like thirty seconds in a movie somewhere. Well, yeah, but it's it's you see those characters are owned by Warner Brothers, so he'll get greenlit for four movies ten years from now, and it'll never happen. <laughs> it'll be right. It'll be right after like the Nightwing movie, and you know Joker and Harley Quinn starring Jared Leto. It'll be like that after after Dwayne Johnson's play Black Adam and the Flash and Cyborg have their movies, you know all this stuff that's never going to happen. It'd be one of those. They announce it; it'll just never take place. <laughs> well, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for coming on and and uh, talking about this. I, I'm totally in awe of your knowledge of movies and who everybody is, but I also know that's like your job. So thank you. <laughs> oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. You can have me back anytime. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, Anissa. The Masculinity Podcast is made possible by the support of people like you. Please visit my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash masculinity, M-A-S-C-U-L-I-N-I-T-E-A. Your support means the world to me. And all people who support this podcast get to join our exclusive Facebook group where the conversation continues. Join us next time for more conversations about men, masculinity, and our relationships to them. In the meantime, if you have ideas, questions, or things you'd like me to talk about, give me a shout. Melina at RadicalRelationshipCoaching.ca